0: Good morning, First Christian Church Champagne. Good morning, First Christian Church Urbana. Good morning, First Christian Church Online. Everybody's getting the same message today. Man, it is so good to be with you guys. Some of our staff is in Mexico on a mission trip with the high schoolers. Some of our staff is leading worship. I'm actually personally uh, in on vacation in San Diego. But it is so good to be with you guys delivering another message in our series through the book of Acts. Today we're diving straight in. No opener. I know what you're thinking. Pfft. Eric. What do you mean? No opener. That's like the best part of some of your messages. It's the thing I look forward to the most. It's like, here's the reason why. It's because Acts chapter 10 is phenomenal. It's fun. It's engaging. So there's no need to fluff it up. So let's just go ahead and start making our way there this morning. Acts chapter 10. While you're turning there, where we've been recently, in Acts chapter 8, we saw the picture of this, I think, called persecution, starting the gospel to spread. The disciples are taking the gospel. New places, new people, that if the gospel is for everyone, then the church needs to be too. Last week in Acts chapter 9, we saw arguably the main character for the rest of the book of Acts, this guy by the name of Paul. He was named Saul at one point. He was a zealous Pharisee. He was actually leading the charge of persecuting these new Christians and has a blinding light moment on the road to Damascus overnight. His life transforms by the Spirit of God, and that's where we said. But we're actually picking up where chapter 9 uh, left us, where We catch up with Peter. He's in this city called Joppa, and something interesting happens in chapter 10. It's a fun story. Here we go. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. It says, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. Three in the afternoon was a common time of prayer. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel of the Lord, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. And he is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So here we've got Cornelius. He's a centurion. He's in this place called Caesarea, and he is a God-fearing, devout man. Now, Caesarea was a very interesting place. It was kind of like the Las Vegas area of the ancient Middle East. It was the Roman headquarters. It's where everything had it's where the government was was hanging out. Everything was happening in and around Caesarea. And he was a centurion, which means he was a pretty high up leader of the Roman uh, army probably 80 to 100 men would report to Cornelius on a regular basis. But it also says he was a devout and God-fearing man. Now what that phrase means in this ancient language here is that these were oftentimes Gentiles who were uh, very, let's say, pro the God of Israel. They were very pro the God of the Bible. They were sympathetic. They were supportive of the Jewish people, yet they just had not made the full or the entire step to have become a Jewish proselyte. So basically, here's what we got going on. We got this guy by the name of Corny. He's a devout man. He's rich. He's powerful. He's living in a rich and powerful city. And we see that he is using everything that he has for good towards the Jewish people. And he has this vision. It says at three o'clock in the afternoon, which means he was following the traditions of prayer. And he says, go to Joppa. You're going to find this guy, this dude by the name of Peter, and you're going to bring him back to your house. That's kind of a big deal to just kind of do that on a whim, is it not? He probably has no idea who Peter is. He probably thinks, I've, I've never really heard of this guy by the name Simon who goes by Peter. I don't know what he looks like. I don't know why he's going to come back to my house. I, I don't really know what this, but he does it anyways. He obeys. And it's because God is never confined to do things the way we would do things. That's why it's called faith. Cornelius, he has faith. He obeys. He sends men to find Peter. And this is where we pick it up back in verse 9 of chapter 10. It says this. It says, so about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went onto the roof to pray. He became hungry, which I don't know, I get hungry when I pray sometimes. Um, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contains all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. So here's Peter. He's in Joppa because he was uh, doing this thing with this woman named Tabitha. The crazy story, chapter, end of chapter nine. Go check it out if you missed it. He says he goes up to the roof at noon because that was just a thing and a place that you went to pray. And he received a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven with four corners. Now it begs the question, everything that Peter sees on that sheet was against the kosher menu of the time for the Orthodox Jewish people. You know, the kosher menu, things like you can't eat shellfish, you can't eat pigs, camels, reptiles, certain birds of prey, they all are not on the list. Well, why did they have a kosher menu to begin with? We don't really know. Some scholars say that, well, uh, it was a way for God's people to be kept and protected without them even knowing from certain animal born illnesses back then. Others say it was just as an act of pure obedience to see that God would say, you need to live different and set apart from the world around you. We don't really know, but we do know the symbolism of this vision. Four corners of the sheet representing the four corners of the earth. As if to say everything in this entire planet that God created, everything is now being restored. Don't you dare call something unclean that I have made clean, God says to Peter. It reminds us exactly of what Jesus says in Mark chapter seven when he says, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean, not what goes in. Do not call it anything unclean, what God has made clean. This is a bold, this is a big, this is a monumental messianic statement to say because of Jesus, because of his work on the cross, there are no more distinctions of clean and unclean. There's no more distinctions of foods that you can eat and foods that you can't eat. And in the same way, there's no more distinctions of Jews, Gentiles, of common people, of saved, redeemed people. In the same manner, Peter's beginning to understand. And praise the Lord, too, because bacon is awesome. Let's just all agree that bacon is amazing, and Peter's beginning to realize, oh, yeah, it's not my job to judge. It's not my job to determine or to decipher, so to speak, who is clean or what is clean or what is unclean. That's God's job because it's my job to obey. story continues then in verse 19. We're picking back up here today. It says, so while Peter was still thinking about the vision the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. This is the three men that Cornelius would have sent to get get Peter and take him back to Caesarea. This is when Peter went down and he said to the man, I am the one you are looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be His guest. Skip with me to verse 27. It says, while talking with him, Peter went inside. He made his way to Caesarea. He's at Cornelius' house. He made his way inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are all well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. It's funny, he, he shifts it. And she says, God has shown me that I'm not supposed to call anyone or any person unclean, even though the vision was about animals, even though the vision was about food. Let me point this picture again, because when we read this, I think we miss on something huge that is happening here. So what I want to do is I want to get a collection of these verses. And if you have a Bible, if you're taking notes in your Bible, I highly encourage you to do that. You can make these highlight circles, and I want to show you all of these connections that happen in just like these, these short amount of verses here. We're going to put it on the screen for you. You can do this along with me if you like. But I want you to take notice of what is happening and what is is kind of being asserted here. So it begins like this. Peter was still thinking about these three men from Simon. These are Gentile men, might I add you. And then it says, the men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. You're responsible to come to his house. You're going to go to Cornelius' house, a Gentile house, a what? They told him, a centurion. And then it says in verse 23, so Peter invited the men into his house, to be his guest. Oh, but it continues. In verse 25, as Peter entered, entered the house of Cornelius, people met and fell. Out his and then while talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, eventually it is unlawful to be associated or to visit with a Gentile. You see what's kind of happening here? You see the the reoccurrences of all of these things? We've got Jews, we've got Gentiles, we've got them coming together and we've got them going into one another's house over and over and over again. You know, there's this idea in, in preaching or public speaking that when you want a point to get across, when you want a point to be made, you repeat it and you say it in different ways. Let me say it again. When you want to make a point, repeat it and try using different words. What do you think the author of Acts, what do you think the apostle Luke is getting at here that the readers are going to take notice of? Gentile house, Gentile people, Jew entering that house. It is unlawful, but he is doing it anyways. This is a huge deal. And the person being changed, the person being transformed in Acts chapter 10, this portion isn't just Cornelius. Isn't just the Gentiles, but it is also Peter. I love what Peter said in verse 28. He says, God has shown me. God has revealed to me something new, something different. Peter enters the house of a Gentile, something that the customs of his Jewish traditions strictly prohibited. But because God showed him something, his heart is changing. You see, it would have been normal for a Jew to say something like, well, I'll go, but let's meet outside and keep our distance. Or the Jew might have said to the Gentile, you know, we can we can engage, but there is somewhere down the street, perhaps an inn that you can stay at so I can stay in my home. He would not have had fellowship with him in this capacity. But by entering a Gentile's home, Peter showed that his heart had been changed and that he had learned the lesson of the great sheet. Here's what we can see is that often God often works on us as we work for him. And perhaps you've noticed that before if you've been a follower of Jesus for some time that God sometimes works on us as we are working for him. You know, right now our high school students, they are in Mexico, they're serving an orphanage, and when they come back, they will probably share stories, and I guarantee you, one of the things you will hear is something along these lines. You know, we went down to this orphanage, and we were doing some work, and we were there to serve the kids and show them God's love, but in the end, I ended up being just as impacted as they did. If you've been on a mission trip of your own, I bet you can relate to that sentiment, Or or what about something where it's like, you know, I signed up to serve and volunteer and the kids are the student ministry. Which, by the way, if you're not serving, great spot to serve. Highly encourage you to do that. I've heard things like, you know, I went to serve, but on a regular basis, I feel like I am learning things about myself by seeing their faith of the next generation. God has a very peculiar way of working on us in our hearts as we work for him. Here's how the, uh, Acts chapter 10, here's how I want to wrap it up for us this morning. Picking back up in verse 34. So Peter's in Cornelius' house and he begins to teach the entirety of this large gathering of Gentiles there. In verse 34, it begins like this. This is then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts From every nation, the one who fears Him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel in announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. He goes on to give this sermon, very similar as one found in Acts chapter two, and then verses forty-four through forty-eight says, "So while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message." The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Notice what they're doing with that speaking in tongues there. They are praising God. That's what it is used for. This is then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. You know, what's the biggest plot twist of, of of any movie of all time? What would you think? If I asked you the question, like, hey, what was the biggest, like, whoa, or aha moment of your perhaps favorite movie or the biggest one that you can remember? And I think most people would probably say, you know what? Star Wars Episode five. When they drop that big truth that Darth Vader is, in fact, Luke Skywalker's father. Like, that is arguably one of the biggest plot twists of all time. How about at the end of Fight Club? You know, we don't talk about Fight Club, but we're going to mention it right here. When you find out that Tyler Durden is actually the narrator the whole time. One of my favorite movies is Shutter Island, Leonardo DiCaprio. He pa- plays a detective who's trying to figure out some things uh, in, in a sane asylum. And at the end of the movie, it's revealed that he is actually a patient himself. And what's always interesting about these big plot twists is that at some point, if you rewatch the movie, you can begin to piece together the foreshadowing. You can begin to kick yourself and you're like, oh man, how did I miss that? It was so obvious. It was right before my eyes. I love the humility of Peter in verse 34, when he just says, I get it now. God has shown me, he's revealed it to me, I now understand. And God's kind of like, yo, Pete, it's been this way forever. This isn't something new. You've just kind of missed out on it. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, you go into the Torah, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. This would have been something that Peter probably knew and memorized as a good Jewish boy. It says this. It says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, and accepts no brides. This has existed for centuries before Peter was even born, but he just gets the light bulb moment in the book of Acts. Oh yeah, I get it now. And God's kind of like, yeah, Peter, that's not a plot twist. This has been my heart since all time, all creation. I wasn't kidding. I told you my plan. now you're just starting to get it. And then it turns into Pentecost, Part two, Acts chapter two, the story of Pentecost. Some people refer to the end of Acts chapter 10 as the Gentile Pentecost. So here is Peter, he's preaching, he's explaining the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles. Now they begin to speak in tongues and the only manner of, of praising and worshiping God, First Corinthians chapter 14 there, and something similar breaks out as what broke out in Acts chapter two. And if you were to take Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two and Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 10, and read them side by side, you're going to notice they're virtually the same. Sure, there's a couple things missing, or there's a couple things that have changed, but more or less, the content in the context of Acts 2 sermon, Acts 10 sermon, they are the same. That's because it doesn't matter who you are, we all need the same sermon, so to speak, in order to receive our salvation in Jesus Christ. Jews back then, Gentiles back then, Jews today, Gentiles today, we all need the same sermon to receive salvation into Jesus Christ. And perhaps that's you today. Perhaps that's the sermon you need to hear today. The sermon that goes something a little bit like this. Well, you know, God created everything to live in harmony and unity with him and then sin came in and it ruined that. And we've all fallen short of God's glory because of the original sin of Adam and Eve and our sin, our choices, and it separates us from God. But because of God's great love for you, yes, you as an individual and his love for every single person that has ever lived and his great love for his creation, he sent himself, he sent his one and only son to die on the cross after he lived a perfect life, died a death he did not deserve, died a death that we deserve to die, and took our place. And he was laid to rest on a grave after taking his final breath on a cross, and he rose triumphantly three days later, so that anyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That if you view yourself as the sinner that you and I are, if we view ourselves as the only way we are accepted, the only way in which we are made right with God is not our actions, but the actions of Jesus. We not only receive the gift of eternal life, but we receive the gift of the spirit living inside of us. That was the message that Peter preached in Acts chapter two. That was the message that Peter preached in Acts chapter 10. And that is the same message we preach today because it's the same message always has been, always is, and always will be. And once we receive that message and we begin to live a transformed life by the blood of Christ, through the power of the Spirit living in us, we live changed lives. You see, Acts chapter 10 is amazing because we see one story about two separate men who are devoted to Jesus. They're devoted to God, and they live a life of faith in obedience because of that devotion. So I want to pull on three quick things for us in this chapter about how a devoted life of faith might look like for us today. So here's the first thing, and perhaps something that we could say we kind of learned from Cornelius along the way, and it's this. It's that you don't have to understand everything about God in order to trust that he is working. Let me say that again. You don't have to understand everything about God in order to trust that he is working in your life. Think of Cornelius' vision. It's kind of insane. He's sitting there, it's the middle of the afternoon, he receives a vision, and he says, hey, Cornelius, go about like 30 miles and send some people to find some guy named Peter and bring him back to your house because he's got some things he needs to share with you. And Cornelius is like, Peter? Sounds kind of like a Jewish name. Is he even going to come into my house? And Cornelius just does it. You see, God does not require to do things the way we think he should. God is not required to act in the manner that we would say, this is how I would act. The prophet Isaiah reminds us in in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. You don't have to understand how something works in order to trust it. I'll give you an example. Um, At some point in time, there was a thing called a fax machine. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you, I've never even used a fax machine. But imagine the first time the first fax became a thing. Someone goes, okay, hold on, you mean to tell me that we've got this piece of paper and we're gonna put it into this machine and type in a phone number, and someone miles, tens of miles, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles away is gonna get that same piece of paper, what we wrote on it, like minutes from now? How does it work? Why this number? Why not that number? How does the information get there? Are there little minions in the sky making it? All that happen? And they're like, no. You just trust it. And they show you and it works. I know it's true of my life. And perhaps it might be true of yours, especially in my faith journey with Jesus, is that more often than not, I'm not asked to understand what God wants of me. I'm asked to be obedient in faith to trust and believe and know that he is working, even though I might not fully understand what he is doing behind the scenes. Here's the second thing. We kind of learned this from from Peter, if you will. The second thing is that God uses imperfect people. God uses imperfect people. All the time, it's his only option, so he's kind of out of choices when it comes down to that. But let me tell you that you don't have to be perfect in order for God to use you. You don't have to be perfect in order for God to move in you. You don't have to even be perfect for God to love you, to welcome you into his family. You see, we do not receive faith as a result of our work, but we work as a result of our faith. You know, one of my favorite ways to to describe what that that kind of dichotomy is like, is like an allowance. You know, why does someone get an allowance in life today? Or ever. More often than not, it's because you belong to a family. Mom and dad say, Well, you're a kid. We love you. Here's some money. We want to teach you responsibilities. And sometimes you got to work for that allowance. Sometimes the allowance is just given. But the only reason you get that allowance in the first place is because of the love of that parent who's welcomed you into that family. The allowance doesn't necessarily mean that you've earned your stay in that family. The allowance is not a sign that you have worked hard enough to be called a child and you get a little extra sugar on top. The allowance says, we love you no matter what. And there are things we want to teach you. We want to teach you responsibility. We want to teach you how to act right. We want to teach you how to work hard. You name it, but ultimately you get an allowance. Because the parents loved you. It's like what Jesus' brother James says. He says, "Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds." God is always using imperfect people, even when we don't get it right, even when we've made a mess along the way, and so just because you've fallen short, and we all have, just because you've missed some signals like Peter did, just because you don't always get it right and you never will, just because you've failed. It doesn't mean that God has thrown you out or says, hmm, there's nothing I can do with you. Because God uses imperfect people. Here's the third thing from Acts chapter 10. This is kind of from Luke, the guy writing the whole story book of Acts. And it's this, it's that seeing the whole story helps us understand our story. That when we can take a step back and we can see the entire story of Scripture unfolding, it's easier for perhaps the people reading it to see like, oh, I get it. I see how that person fits in. I see how their story puts on display God's majesty or God's glory. You see, when we stand back some 2,000 years later, we can think, hmm, how did Peter miss this? How did Peter miss all of the signs, all the foreshadowing? How did they miss all of this? Why did it take so long for that to sit in with Peter? But when you can see the whole story, we can begin to understand our story. And the whole story of God's story is all the time, throughout all history, for all people to come to him. I hope that encourages you, if you've never heard that before, If you're hearing it for the first time, the 10th time, the 1 millionth time, I hope that encourages you. Is that God's story has always been written for you and anyone and everyone to be welcomed into his love, his family, his kingdom. Here's the second thing, though, is that, church, I hope we are able to see the story of what God is doing, not just in the book of Acts, not just in the New Testament church, but what God is still continuing to do in our lives today as disciples. From the beginning of creation all the way till this very moment, God's story is playing out in a way in which your story fits into it. You might not know it, you might not see it, you might not have all of the pieces yet, but seeing the whole story of God's love and grace and redemption and gospel and mercy and justice and, and all of the things coming together, that your story can probably start to make sense as well too. Because God is always working on behalf of his story and in the lives of his disciples. I want to close this morning's message by reading this part of Romans chapter 8. Would you follow along with me as you read Romans eight twenty six through 30. The Apostle Paul says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not, not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What does it mean to be a devout person? What does it mean to be like Cornelius? What does it mean to be like Peter? It's to know God's story and how we all fit into it. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your spirit-led direction in the book of Acts. Lord, may we surrender anything to you this morning that is holding us back. May we receive your forgiveness in the areas in which we need to see it, to know it, to feel it. And Lord, may you bless us as we continue to worship you. Today, this week, this month, this year, Lord, may we be devoted to the point of obedience in our faith to you because we know you are working and we know your story, how it works out for our good. It's your name that we pray, amen.